0: Well, this morning I am not preaching, but instead we have somebody who is, uh, who is a part of our church, who's a member of our church. Uh, James Martineau is going to be preaching uh, for us this morning. And uh, James Martineau is, uh, uh, is a great brother in the Lord. He loves the Lord Jesus, he loves the church, he loves God's people. Uh, he and uh, his wife Erin have two boys, and they're just a, a wonderful, uh, lovely family. And it is uh, a joy to have him uh, preach uh, God's word this morning. So I'm going to invite him up. And so let us uh, keep our hearts and minds open to receive God's word through uh, God's agent this morning. So, thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a great privilege uh, to be able to bring the word to you this morning to to preach. I really love being able to do this. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. Let me just open this up in prayer. God, I, I am nothing without you. You are everything. You are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, and you have given us your word. Thank you for it. It is good for teaching and correction. It is important and necessary for us growing up in the faith to turn our hearts and draw near to you. So I pray, Father, that you that you would be leading. Soften our hearts. Open our ears. Help us to receive and to rest in you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Hashtag adulting. What in the world does that mean? I'm not sure everyone knows what the term hashtag even means, so let me explain. Well, people use the hashtag symbol, it's that pound sign, before a relevant keyword or phrase before sending a message on the social media platform, Twitter, to categorize messages and help them show up more easily in a Twitter search. And this term hashtag has worked its way into more common vernacular now, as people use it as a descriptor of one of, and one of those is hashtag adulting. Well, whether in a joking or somewhat serious way, that's someone's attempt at uh, trying to claim that they're acting like an adult, which is a little ironic. And at what point does someone stop talking about being an adult or acting like an adult and start just being an adult? The same concept holds true for the Christian. We are to intentionally pursue Christ and by his grace be conformed more daily into his image, and we are to mature and grow up in the faith. And so it is with this aim of maturing in the faith that we endeavor to understand Hebrews 1 through 6, 1 through 8. The first five chapters of this book are anchored in the reality that Christ is supreme and superior to all peoples, all beings, and all things. And in chapter 1 of Hebrews, we see his superiority as the heir and creator of everything and his deity as the exact imprint of the radiance of the glory of God. The author makes it clear to us as well why Jesus needed to come the way he did, taking on flesh and dying the death he died in chapter 2. And in chapters 3 through 5, the urgent reminder is given to us, um, is given to these Jewish Christians to pay much uh, much more close attention To the gospel of christ with faith not hardening their hearts to god the way their ancestors did but to hold fast their confidence and hope and to the faithful high priest jesus christ so the truths found in the context of the first five chapters are essential for us to understand and meditate on so that we can grasp what god is trying to warn us about here in this passage and as the book of hebrews opens god has spoken he has revealed himself to his cre- creation, that we may know him, adore him, love him, and choose life. Just as in Genesis, in the beginning, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we have before us life and death, good and evil. And as God the Father thundered to the, to the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. So we too should listen that we may fear the Lord and choose life by placing our trust in the person of Christ Jesus and his righteousness. Let's turn to Hebrews 6 now. It's between Philemon and James in the New Testament. Verses 1 through 8. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The purpose of this passage is twofold. First, those that are not truly repentant and have saving faith in Jesus Christ will reject him and face eternal judgment. And secondly, for the true believers in Jesus, they will mature deeper into his likeness by the grace of God and through diligent meditation of his word. We can be confident of this as God's word does not ever come back empty. And the power of the Holy Spirit changes us into the image of Christ. We can rest in his finished work. So as we reread the first two verses again, the word therefore should grab our attention and demand a curiosity of the passage's context. We briefly touched on the letter's context before, but the immediate context of this passage is paramount to understanding the author's purpose here. Therefore brings us back to chapter 5, verse 11, where the author makes a hard stop in his assessment of how Jesus is the better Aaron as a high priest over his people. Let's read uh, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. In this, Jesus and Aaron comparison, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, and those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Very bluntly, the solid food of the deeper knowledge of God could not be fed to this congregation because they had become dull of hearing. Let us make no mistake about the situation. The dullness was actually bad fruit of willful ignorance. Remember, this letter is being written to Jewish Christians. And why is that important? Well, as God's chosen people, he commanded all of Israel to follow the Torah, the law of God, and meditate on the Hebrew scriptures that they may live loving the Lord their God. We see it here in Deuteronomy 4.1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I, Moses, am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord the God of your fathers is giving you. And we also see it here from Moses um, later to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments— and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth To witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. That you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers. To Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give them the people of Israel were to recite the law together as a nation at the Feast of Booths every year. Parents were commanded by the Lord to raise up their children in the teaching of the Lord in all aspects of life. Plainly, the people of Israel were commanded to know, study, and meditate on the Old Testament. But it is because this congregation here in the book of Hebrews that although knowing who and what Jesus has done has not rested in his fulfillment of the law and the prophets for the propitiation of their sins, that the author is writing this warning. Angels, Moses, Aaron, leaving the wilderness after 40 years and entering the promised land, and all the old covenant was to be understood by all Jews. And it is for the first five and a half chapters of Hebrews, the author explains how Jesus is superior to all and the fulfillment of all its promises. If there isn't belief that Christ is supreme over all, then we have not understood the gospel. Everything written in this letter so far has been building up to this point, which is why the author is impressing the warning of trust only in the saving work of Christ for your righteousness and not your dead works. So with all this contextual weight now in mind, we can move forward to grab Hold of the primary point of these chapter five verses that overflow into our main passage. Those that should be maturing past the fundamental doctrines of God, they are still infants and infants without understanding. Hebrews 5.13, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Dr. Al Moler, um, he points out, and it's a, it's a helpful reference, teachers in this, it's not a reference for those who hold a particular office, such as pastors or elders. Rather, by using the term teacher, the author is addressing the responsibility to disciple other believers. And I think that it's, that's a helpful point, as it reminds us that every believer's responsibility is to disciple less mature Christians, in the elementary teachings of God. But instead, they're not maturing and they're actually required. They require needing to be taught again the basics of Christ's teaching. And as we look at the understanding Israel was to have of the scriptures earlier, we can see that this is willful ignorance and does not fall into the category that we need repetition and learning. All of us need repetition and learning. This is different. As the author already warned in chapter 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so is the concern for, uh, with this congregation facing the temptation to run back to the dead works of Judaism as a means of their righteousness. The practice of discerning good from evil, life from death, will only come from constant and prayerful effort toward the things of God. So having spent that time looking around chapter 6, I hope we, hope we can agree that how important it is to have that context before jumping into this passage. And by steeping ourselves in that understanding, the first three verses of chapter 6 come to life in a whole more full way. Let's read it again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. At first glance, it could be very easy to consider the author is telling the church to forget about uh, these elementary teachings of Christ, but that is not the case. Each of these fundamentals was being distorted by this congregation as they had not left behind the works-based salvation Judaism has. They had not yet to rest completely in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now the law was crucial prior to Jesus, but now through Christ, the new covenant has been given and the demands of the law have been satisfied in him. Having that faith-based spiritual foundation in our hearts is critical. But then that foundation of elementary teachings is to be built upon by pressing on toward maturity in Christ. And they could do, and we can do this, only if God permits. Let's look at these fundamentals a little bit more closely in three groupings so that we can understand why they're necessary to press on toward maturity. The first is repentance and faith. Second is the washing and the laying on of hands. Third is resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So in God's great mercy and by his grace, we're only able to see the ugliness of our sin in light of the holiness of the Almighty and our need for repentance turning to Jesus. And it is only on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not our own, that we can receive eternal life. This is the author's great concern for the congregation as they're being tempted to return back to that workspace salvation. The gospel is only of any value to us when we combine it with faith. As uh, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter four, verse two, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they they were not united by faith with those who listened. We too are in the same boat and we must believe that our justification is only by faith alone in Christ alone, not from anything that we do. We must trust in Christ as our great high priest and the Lamb of God to completely atone for our sins by his death on the cross, leave behind the dead works and press on to growth in faith. Paul writes in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, uh, verses 21 through 26, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now I pray that, Lord, let this be the foundation. Let this be our foundation. And on that alone, may we stand lest the good news has no no benefit to us. And along a similar vein as repentance and faith, the second grouping of washings and the laying on of hands has the call of leaving the old things behind and placing our confidence in the finished work of Jesus. Ceremonial washings in Judaism were commanded in the law as a temporary means of purification for the people of Israel. Before anyone could enter the temple or sacrifice for atonement, they needed to be made clean before God. But in the new covenant brought forth by Christ, baptism represents a person's trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And although there appears to be some debate among scholars as to what exactly the author is addressing here with the laying on of hands, it is clear that this congregation was being entangled in the truth that righteousness only comes from faith in Christ and not from ritualistic practices or ceremony. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now we've looked at repentance and faith and the the washings and laying on of hands. And now lastly, the third pair, third pair goes hand in hand as the resurrection of the dead is for the final judgment. Without Christ standing as our advocate and substitute, how can any of us, stand before the throne of judgment and live. Then let us choose life and trust in Christ that we too may be covered by his blood and declared righteous for the glory of God. In Romans 8, uh, 34, Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. It is a good thing for us to consider how short our lives truly are and what is coming. If you are not in Christ, this should sober you to the eternal realities and draw you into the fear of the Lord. But if you are in Christ, this should free you from any fear and press on and grow in faith. Verse three in chapter six carries significant weight and needs to be the lens through which we understand all these things. And says, and this we will do if God permits. As mentioned before, and which refers back to the beginning of chapter 4, unless God unstops our ears and permits us to understand, the power of the gospel will be meaningless to us. We must pray for God to grant us maturity in the faith. And in that praying, and his permitting of greater depths of the knowledge of himself, we will be driven closer to him. And we see more clearly how desperate we truly are for him. And this too should sustain us, should sustain our perseverance to the end. This verse should be read as God's calling to the congregation to return back to him. The author is confident God will permit maturation to this congregation as they are being spurred on, although they were facing the temptation to revert back to Judaism. This whole letter is dedicated to showing how much more superior and preeminent Jesus Christ is to all as the greatest treasure in all the universe. Every day we must remember the fundamentals of the gospel and the awesome, massive foundation they have laid in our hearts. And we must constantly put to death the old self and its desires to earn God's favor by works. We must abandon these ways. And we must pay much closer attention to these things that we have heard so that we will cling even closer to the cross and salvation Christ bought for us by his precious blood. So let us abandon our self-righteousness and enter into the rest promised by his perfect righteousness. So just as the word therefore in verse one was a cue for the reader to go back to chapter five, so is the word for, Starting verse 4. Typically, 4 should signal to the reader an explanation or continuation of thought is occurring. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again. To repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to condemned contempt. Unless you're already familiar with this text, it may leave you feeling a little confused, maybe slightly worrisome in respect to the sureness of your uh, of, of salvation in Jesus. But if that sure foundation has been laid in Christ then it cannot be at risk. because Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And since we know that Scripture cannot contradict itself, how then are we to interpret this text? Well, Those who are falling away in this congregation have experienced in part the blessings of God that come when one is saved. That is indicated by the repeating uh, repeating phrase, who have. Who have once been enlightened, who have tasted in the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. The truth of the gospel has been revealed to them and they are not uninformed. They have seen the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The lips of their minds have savored in part how good God's word is and seen his eternal power. But even in, all, even, even in all this, they are not regenerated and do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not have true spiritual life and are not truly saved. The illustration in verses seven and eight will help solidify how this can be in a moment, but we need to look closer at the word again as it keeps repeating. The author tells us plainly why it's impossible for those falling away to be restored again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This falling away communicates a returning to their old way of, of Judaism, but the main issue is of much deeper matter as the implications have a direct aim toward Jesus. Returning back to Al Mohler, um, he also says, we have all known people who have made public professions of faith in Christ, gotten involved in a church, showed signs of Christian growth and maturity, and yet ultimately they fell away. They're not ignorant. They know who Christ is and what he offers, and they still reject him. In their departure they were re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. To fall away from Christ is to pour contempt on him, which is equivalent to crucifying him all over again. So how is it that Jesus can be crucified all over again? We know he died once and for all. The author is speaking metaphorically to the original reason Christ came to die on the cross. To pour contempt on someone is to see that person beneath your consideration and deserving of scorn. Doesn't that sound a little familiar to the reception Christ got when he came? We see in John 1, 10 and 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So in their departure, After knowing who Jesus is and the truth of the gospel, by choosing to return to their old ways, they poured contempt on Christ. To see Jesus as beneath your consideration is to choose death instead of life. And it is because we have all failed to see the Son of God as he truly was that we originally nailed him to that cross to die. They intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And we praise him for that. As we see in John 8, even as the Father, the scriptures, and the miracles of Christ's life all bore witness to who he truly is, the Son of God, the Most High, God incarnate, the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word. Everyone turned away and rejected him. So let us consider this yet again. Even in knowing we would all deny him, he still gave up his sinless life and hung on that tree we so rightly deserve to suffer on. We should be deeply grieved at the sight of how costly our sin is and run with full abandonment to the flesh, the world, all of their lies, to the one who tasted death for everyone and is not ashamed to call the elect his brothers. Savor once again the kindness of God through his son in ransoming his bride in Hebrews 2:14 through 18 his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And it is only by the grace and mercy of God that we can understand these things, that we can begin to grasp our desperate need for him. For the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Remember again today that you have been bought with a really high price and have been delivered from the slavery of the fear of death. Remember, he took on our flesh to fulfill all the righteous standards of the law because we could not, and then he died in our place. Jesus did what we could not, received what we deserved, and offers what we have not earned. Brothers and sisters, this is mercy and grace. Let us then have a firm foundation of those fundamental doctrines Christ has laid in our hearts, that a grand house can be built upon it in full devotion, worship, and love for God in our lives, lest we do not pay much more close attention to these things and drift away. For if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. Cling to him." As we round the final corner, this illustration in verses 7 through 8, the author provides will help us survey the text from a different vantage point. It says, For the land has drunk the, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receiving a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. As often as used in scripture, God is leveraging an agricultural metaphor to re-communicate that same message. So here the land is our hearts and the rain is the word of God. There is nothing wrong with the rain the Lord provides. The seed, for, for the seed is to grow into a bounty. But if the soil isn't good, then only weeds and other shallow fruit will be produced. And those are not good for anything. So to help us interpret what this section means, we should reference Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where he describes how the word of the Lord can land on different hearts. He says in verses 20 through 21, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, for he endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately, he falls away. My wife, Erin, can attest that I am not much of a gardener. And each year we plant some simple vegetables and I get excited uh, when things start to spring up, it's working, Uh, but at face value, the real cilantro looks like a certain type of weed. Now, I have learned to recognize this over time and am skeptical for the first little while, but the difference becomes very noticeable in due time it's important for us to test the soil of our hearts, to see what type of crops are being produced. If we just assume that because something is growing without actually testing its genuineness, we should consider who Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7:22 through 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These passages aren't meant to scare us. But we can't be naive to the reality that our hearts are idle factories. We inherently pervert the truth. And so we need to be watchful. That is a mark of maturity. A simple and helpful question to ask is, how have I changed since coming to faith in Jesus? What type of fruit has been growing since then? That might be easier for some to recall if you're newer in the faith, but even if you've been walking with the Lord for some time now, consider these questions. How are my affections for the Lord being stirred today? How is my joy for the Lord? how is my love for his word, his people, and the lost? None of these are checkmark questions. The war between the flesh and the spirit is constant, and it's real, and it's ever-present on this side of glory. Some days the fight is easier than others, but these questions should always lead us back to the Lord in prayer and or in praise, as he helps us to fight. These should also be spurring us on to come alongside one another as the author says in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin sin is deceptive it's dangerous and it's powerful and it always overpromises and underdelivers and this is why we much pay, we must pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard and hold fast to the confident assurance that we have in Christ The soil of our hearts needs to be worked and turned over again and again that a ripe and mature harvest can be yielded. And this takes work. God isn't just going to immediately change us. That's not the way he chooses to work in our hearts. This keeps us humble and it keeps us desperate and dependent on him. He is calling us to participate and depend upon him completely to have the sanctifying work of conformity in the image of his son by his grace. Learn how to work the soil of your hearts by resting in the finished work of Jesus. Over time, the genuineness of our faith will be tested. And this doesn't mean that those who are truly saved, who have have faith in Christ will have it easy or never fail from trials, far from it. Following Jesus is a continual process of refinement. Becoming a Christian starts with seeing our sin in view of the holiness of God and repenting to turn away from that sin and trust in Christ for salvation from the eternal wrath we deserve because he died in our place and now imputes us with his righteousness. We are justified once and for all, as Romans 10:9 tells us, and the rest of our days are a process of sanctification—the slow and repeated operation of the old self dying and the new self maturing in Christ. It's necessary to pay attention to the fruit that is being born today in the fields of our hearts, and to to consider: Are we bearing a, cru- a crop of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness? gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these are fruits of the Spirit. And a good crop is only grown by the grace of God, blessing our obedient efforts to mature past the spiritual milk of infancy and go on to solid foods that which, by constant use, we can train ourselves to discern good from evil. Strengthen your faith, by knowing the author of your faith more by steeping yourself in the faith-kindling word of God talk with others about the word pray his word over yourself your family the church your neighbors the world these are all practices and disciplines that will not return empty but if you're seeing the crop is more like weeds thorns or thistles of this world things like sexual immorality impurity idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, and impropriety entertained in the mind. Don't be fooled. We cannot love sin and Jesus. We cannot have two masters. We will be slaves to either sin or to righteousness, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, verses 20 through 23. We should see the consistency in language from the Old Testament to the New that God's standards do not change. And as we, as we read at the start in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and the length of days. So as we conclude, I ask you, brothers and sisters, drink in the word of Christ and pray to God earnestly, Psalm 90, 14, that he would satisfy our hearts with his love, that you may rejoice and be glad all the days of your life. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Jesus Christ is God. and He is far better than anything this world has to offer. And we can only come to the Father through him. He has paid all the costs of our sin. And he has made straight the way for us to come back to be with him. We could not earn our way to heaven. And we could not become clean enough through ceremonial rituals. So God has come out from the Holy of Holies to us, the leper, the lame, and the sick, in the person of Jesus Christ. Cry out to him and he will hear your voice. Draw near to him and cling to his promises. Pray to him eagerly and expectantly for the maturation of your faith. And that your confident hope would be laid up in heaven, that you would not waver. Do not cease to pray asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Praise God exuberantly for his delivering you from the domain of darkness and transferring you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption the forgiveness of sins and if you have not loved god and repented of your sins for those who have not placed their trust in jesus christ for their salvation and surrendered to him as lord consider today these truths set before you today and the eternal implications of your soul life and death, heaven and hell, blessing and curse, good and evil. I pray that today you would choose life. and I pray that today you would choose Christ. May we all learn how to work the soil of our hearts more faithfully by resting in the finished work of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are life and you are love. Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. There is no name that is higher than yours. And there is no name under heaven by which we can be saved apart from you. It is you alone. Thank you so much that you have satisfied everything, that you have ransomed us That you are our high priest. That you are the Lord. You are interceding on our behalf. And you have given us your Holy Spirit. A seal for our souls. It is guaranteed. That we will be with you. When we have trusted in you. Lord. Draw us into you. May you be the desire of our hearts. I pray that this morning. You would satisfy our hearts with your love. That we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our life. Help us to press on to know more fully who you are. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.